You might want to turn that microphone off, off, just in case. Okay. Merry Christmas. How is everybody? Awesome. Yeah, everybody's good. Great. I uh, got a new t-shirt this week. Everybody love this? No? No, pl- I'm not trying to make a political statement. It's a Christmas present, and I thought it was awesome, so here it is. It says, Scripture, the most powerful weapon. For those of you that need glasses. Yeah. A friend and I have a tradition. There's this uh, specific website that makes awesome t-shirts. And so we have a tradition that we each buy each other a t-shirt from that website. We can't tell each other what it is. And then we meet up and exchange them. So I got a new t-shirt this week and wanted to wear it. Um, Which is ironic because we're going to talk about the Bible, right? I just thought it fit really well with Christmas and, you know, guns and Christmas. It just just fits. Yeah. I mean, we're in Staten, right? He lives in Portland. I live in Staten. So he thought, hey, I couldn't wear this to church, so you can. (laughs) All right. Jokes aside. Here we go. Uh, We've been uh, walking through a series on uh, the attributes of God. And today, I promise I didn't plan this, but this is going to be really fun. Uh, We are going to be talking about the omnipresence of God. And so some of you are going, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know what you just said. Um, the, the term omni just means all. It's a fancy way for saying all. So we are going to talk about the fact that God is all present today. And again, I didn't plan that the weekend of Christmas, that we're going to also, as David kind of stole my thunder there and already got into the incarnation, I was going to spring that on you guys as if you didn't already know that. Um, but I was going to, you know, talk about the omnipresence of God and then go, oh, and we're talking about Christmas, but cat's out of the bag. Thanks for that. Um, I'm just kidding. That was wonderful. And actually, David just kind of set the table for me, so it was kind of complimentary. So here we go. Uh, we're going to talk about the omnipresence of God. What does that mean for us, right? Um, a lot of times when we're talking about these big ideas, uh, these attributes of God, these ways that God is not like us, right? Because that's Uh, The book that I read that kind of inspired this series is a book by a lady named Jen Wilkin called None Like Him. Uh, So it's the 10 ways that God is not like us, and we're almost two-thirds of the way through that. But when we're talking about ways that God is not like us, it's kind of weird because it's hard for us to understand someone that's not like us. And so the idea of omnipresence or all-present is completely foreign to us in every way. Because we are not omnipresent. And one of the things that we see, and we've talked about this a little bit as we've gone through this, one of the things we see in ourselves as we look at these different attributes of of God and the ways that he is not like us, we see ways in our heart that we try to be that. It's really interesting to me that um, most of us don't idolize the ways, and we're going to get to this, the, the second half of this sermon series is, is going to be the ways that we are like him. We don't idolize those. We idolize the ways that we are not like him, right? Which takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, which takes us all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve were given a choice and said, hey, don't touch this. And Satan lied to them and said, you will be what? Like God. You will be like God. And that was the temptation that captured the hearts of Adam and Eve 
to disobey God, was that they would be like God. It wasn't enough to be with Him. It wasn't enough to experience His presence fully. They wanted to be like Him. And so when we think about our culture and some of the temptations in our culture, uh, in the ways that we, uh, we talked uh, the last couple of weeks, we talked about some different things. It talked about God being eternal, right? And this idea of time and how we are limited by time, but we're also limited by space. And God being omnipresent or all-present all is the way in which He is not limited by space. We are very limited by space. And yet, we constantly try to be everywhere at once. Right? I mean, technology has enabled us to be, in a limited sense, more than one place at a time. But the problem with that for all of its benefits for us, right? Because it's extremely beneficial. Extremely beneficial. The problem is that we lose things. It's like we're sacrificing a piece of ourselves every time that we try to stretch ourselves in ways that we weren't designed to be stretched. I was having a conversation with someone this week about communicating through text uh, and how that's difficult, especially in conflict, right? Because I can text... Uh, so my wife and I are in conflict, right? You know, this is hypothetical purely because that just doesn't happen, you guys, right? So we're fighting, and I'm not at the house, and I text her. Uh, some, she texts me something sarcastic. She would never do that, but mean and sarcastic, just digging at me, right? And so I text back to her, I love you. Now she can read that, I love you, or she can read it, I love you. But that's completely up to her interpretation. Why? Because she doesn't see my face. She doesn't hear my tone, see where I'm putting my hand, right? There's so much that is lost through that medium of communication, as convenient as it is. And it's just one of, like, I'm not saying that texting is bad. I'm not saying that technology is bad. I'm saying that these are ways that we're trying to stretch our presence beyond what we are physically capable. We are not omnipresent. God is and so for us to, to think about God being omnipresent, it requires us to think about something that's totally foreign to us. He is not like us. Now, um, this isn't an exclusively Christian stream of thought. The idea of God being omnipresent or present everywhere is not an exclusively Christian idea. Now, the difference between this uh, Christian idea of omnipresence and some of the other religions of the world's view of omnipresence, uh, we could just kind of, you've heard the term pantheism, right? Um, so this idea that God is everything and that God is everywhere, so God is omnipresent, right? But the difference is, but, is that um, God is not everything. God is God. And he can enter into his creation, but he is completely separate from it. You see the difference? The massive difference that God is transcendent, God is imminent, he is all-important. He is not creation. He created it, and he reveals himself through it, but he is not creation. I drink a lot of coffee this morning, so I'm all over. All right, so. The Bible reveals to us that God can be most present to a person in a specific way, right? We see this all throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 57 says that, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, 
whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God can be present with us in a real, personal way. Psalm 46, verse 1 says that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So God can be present with us personally. At the same time, being present in every situation in all of creation. Psalm 33 says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. God is both. And he is both always. He is never one or the other exclusively. And again, so we're talking about something that's so foreign to our human minds that they actually start to crack a little bit when we talk about this stuff. And when we talk about the attributes of God and the ways that he is not like us, there is a huge element of mystery to it. A huge part of this that literally, simply cannot be explained through human language. God is everywhere, and God is every time. Everywhere at all times. Always. God is naturally present. In Isaiah chapter 40, it says, Who who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Right? He's naturally present in all of those things, in his greatness. And he's actively present. This is an interesting uh, tie-in. Okay? Psalm 48 says, By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. Second Chronicles chapter 20, starting in verse 37. Then Eliezer, the son of uh, Dedavahu of Merishah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have joined with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. And the ships were wrecked and were not able to go to Tarshish. Who wrecked the ships? God did. The wind did, but who did it? God did. Right? He was personally active. He was present in nature. Right? When Jesus wakes up in the boat with his disciples and they're like, Lord, right, we're about to die. And he slowly saunters up to the front of the boat and speaks to the wind and the waves and says, be silent. Be quiet. He rebukes nature. He's actively present in all that happens. Actively present in the good and the bad. In fact, this is going to tweak some of your brains a little bit, and I'm just going to say this, and I'm going to move on and just leave you there, okay? In Revelation chapter 4, we talk about this idea of hell, right? Like in eternity, like, you know, those people are going to go there, and then we're going to go here, and we're going to be with God, and they're going to be, right? Did you know that Revelation chapter 4 actually says that those uh, that, go to, are, that are going to spend eternity in torment and hell will be tormented in the presence of the Lamb? Moving on. Okay? He's present in Jesus. In Matthew 28, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is omnipresent. We're going to talk about that more in a minute, aren't we? He's present in the Spirit. Okay, John in, uh, in, uh, in John 15, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And earlier in John, in chapter 14, he said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another Helper, not him, another Helper, the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you when? Forever. Forever. There's nowhere that you and I cannot, can go to escape the presence of God. He is present everywhere. Now for humans, this is both encouraging and a little weird. Because we have been some places and done some things that we don't want God to see. We've thought some things that we don't want God to know about. So the idea that God is present everywhere at all times can be a little disconcerting. But then we turn that on its head and we say, wait, so God, eternal God, infinite eternal God who exists outside of time declares the end from the beginning, right? Before he created us was present in every single one of our sins, every single one of our failures. He was there when he created you. Created you, loves you, and desires to spend eternity with you. That is an unbelievable truth. An unbelievable truth. And so then, these, these, uh, th- these mysteries, these mysterious attributes of God that sometimes can cause us to have a little bit of fear, should ultimately cause us to explode in worship. This is, the, this is the greatness of the incarnation. This is the celebration of Christmas. That the omnipresent, all-powerful, eternal God came to earth for you and for me. He's present in the church, right? Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to Peter, he says, I tell you, Peter, you you are, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Who's building it? Sam? Sam and the elders? Right? Sam and the elders and all the people that sign up for set up and tear down? Jesus is. Jesus is. Jesus is building his church. In Staten, in Oregon, in the United States, in China. I mean, the Chinese church is being devastated right now. But when the church is devastated, it's never more powerful. Make no mistake. That country is in for something. (laughs) They think that they're destroying something, that they are just, they're lighting a fuse. They're lighting a fuse. And the church in China is going to explode in the most glorious way. So Hebrews chapter 13 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever.
Christmas. Baby Jesus in a manger. This is the miracle of miracles. When we view human history, this is the miracle of miracles. We're going to talk about more about this idea tomorrow night. Emmanuel, God with us. Now, wait, so God wasn't fully present in the Old Testament? Yes. But now he's coming to be more fully present? Yes. How's that work? There's a difference between in someone's, like we talked about this idea of knowing God versus knowing God, right? And how we have to approach God in humility if we want to know him. We can know all the stuff about him. I've, I've met people that know more about theology than me. Thousands of them. Millions of them. Right? Half the people in this room. That doesn't mean you know God. Doesn't mean you know God. There's a difference. So when Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 are removed from the garden, is God fully present? Yes, he's still fully present. It just changes the way that they experience his fullness and his presence. There's a fracture in the relationship. There's a fracture in the standing of us before him. It does not mean that he's not fully present. It is his nature. So Emmanuel, Emmanuel means that God is coming to be with us in a way that he hadn't been with man since the garden. This is a crazy idea, you guys. This is a crazy idea that the omnipresent God takes the human form. Not just the human form, but the human form of a baby born to poor people who don't even have a place to stay. Like the lowest of the low. All-powerful, eternal, infinite God taking the lowest human form. The lowest human form at, you could argue, the lowest possible time. Right? I mean, the great nation of Israel was under Roman occupation. In Bethlehem, some, there are some people in this room that have actually been to Bethlehem. Nothing special about it. Staten's probably a little bit nicer. He wasn't born in the 21st century when we have these wonderful hospitals and birthing centers and all these, you know, 18 nurses making sure that you have ice water and chips to chew on and everything's as comfortable as possible. No, she's in a barn. The highest taking the form of the lowest. And yet he was still fully God. Jesus, in his smallest form, was still fully God. And I'm not expecting us, I'm not expecting us to fully wrap our minds around this. And I don't think that's the point. Right? In fact, I know it's not. I had breakfast yesterday with Luke, and we were talking about the idea of 
revelation and mystery. And how uh, I got convicted not too long ago because I was uh, reading some stuff about um, the Messiah, you know, Jesus coming and the Messiah, and how we typically think, like, man, those Israelites were such numbskulls. Like, they had the entire Old Testament, they had all the prophecies. How did they not see it coming? Like, how did they not recognize Jesus? And then I think about uh, us, and I think about um, the book of Revelation. Let's just use the book of Revelation. So the end times, there's all this confusion and all these weird pictures and dragons and, you know, beasts with ten horns and weird stuff. And we argue about what it all means. And at sometimes I picture us sitting in eternity going, man, what were we thinking? Right? Could it be that the revelations that God gives to mankind about the future are given to us in such a way so that we might marvel at his greatness and not figure everything out ahead of time? Could it be that some of the mysteries of God are given to us in such a way to uphold his mystery and his greatness and not to explain everything? So I'm okay with saying all present God being taking the lowest human form is a paradox. It's inscrutable. It cannot be explained. And I'm okay with that because it drives me to worship him. It should drive us to worship them. That he willingly did this. That this was not a reaction to our sin. This was the plan from the beginning. The cross is not a defeat. The cross is the, the, the coronation of a king. We sometimes think about his second coming being his coronation. No, no, no. His coronation, when he took the throne, the cross is his throne. It's just backwards than what we want. Right? That's why they didn't recognize him, because it was backwards from what they wanted. And that's why we don't recognize the working of God in our life, because it, so often it's backwards from what we want. We don't want our cross to be our glory. We want his cross to pay for all that so that we can have glory. And we reveal that we're missing it. Sorry, I'm getting way off track. All right, here we go. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Read that again. In him, that's Jesus, baby Jesus, and then grew up to be the man Jesus. In him the whole fullness of deity, the whole fullness of God, everything that we've been talking about, dwells bodily. That cannot be explained. It can only be worshipped. Augustine said that he was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he had formed. See the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of the birth of Jesus, the mystery of Emmanuel, God with us, should cause us to burst forth in worship. Because only he could do this. God can, cannot not be omnipresent. 
right? That, that applies to Jesus as well. And we don't think about that. We think Jesus, well, Jesus took human form. Yes, he did. Uh, here's an interesting story. In John chapter 1, I'm just going to read it because it wasn't in my notes. I thought about this later. In John chapter 1, we went over this in our small group. Uh, Jesus is calling his disciples, and he calls this guy named Philip, who then go gets this other guy named Nathaniel and says, hey, come check this guy out. He's from Nazareth. Anybody remember Nathaniel's response? <laughs> Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I grew up in Jefferson, and that's how we felt about Sio. Like, Sio, please. And all you state nights are like, Jefferson, come on, Sam, right? I get it. I live here now. So, right, Nathaniel said to him, uh, hold on, I lost my spot. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Right, so he's kind of calling him out a little bit, right? I know you're going to speak honestly. How does he know that? Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. How did he see him? Because he was there. Isn't that crazy? Jesus took bodily form. Lowered himself but he was still God. When we think about that baby laying in a manger, being held by, by his mother, while he is simultaneously holding the universe together, we cannot explain it. We can only worship it. Louis Burkhoff, I'm, I'm quoting a lot of old dead guys, but they're worth it. Trust me. The doctrine of creation, the doctrine of the incarnation always constituted a problem in connection with the immutability of God. We talked about that, right? The fact that God cannot be changed. He's immutable. He's unchanging. So this doctrine of creation and the doctrine of the incarnation, God becoming a baby, always presents on the surface a problem for the immutability of God. However, this problem may be solved. It should be maintained that the divine nature did not undergo any essential change in the incarnation. Jesus never stopped being who he was. He never stopped being God. He was never not fully God. Now, there's a passage in Scripture, some of you are already thinking about it, where this seems to be contradictory. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What is he talking about there? Like if we read back a couple of verses, he's talking about humility, right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So does that contradict the omnipresence of Jesus? Does that contradict the idea that God is always fully God and is never not fully God? It doesn't. It doesn't. 
Especially if we read that verse, that passage in the context of what Paul is trying to say. He's talking about humility. He's not talking about Jesus changing his nature or or becoming less than he has been and will be for eternity. He's talking about the fact that Jesus chose to not act in that way. When Jesus was being tempted by Satan and Satan was offering all these things, think about this. When Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world, it's kind of like my kid offering to give me something that I already own. Right? Jesus never stopped being God. He was always fully God. And that just adds to this mystery, this inscrutability of the incarnation, that Jesus came in human form and he chose at any point during his brutal torture and crucifixion, he could have called down angels from heaven, right? And they were, at, they were mocking him, saying, if you're really the Christ, do this, prove to us. And all the while, he was proving who he was by not. Think about this. He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was breaking the temptation that Adam and Eve fell to, right? Adam and Eve grasped the fruit because they believed the lie that they could be like God. Jesus did the opposite. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He chose to go the other way. Didn't change who he was. He didn't pull the cord on the parachute. So the incarnation is an extension of him, not a reduction. You get that? It's God extending himself to us. It's not him reducing who he is, ever. It's a self-willed emptying. And this is, again, so, so we talk about Uh, Jesus' birth, the incarnation, his life, and his death. Everything about it screams self-emptying. In the cross, him being lifted up. His throne. And he's modeling for us. He's modeling victory. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think about how different the world would exist if Adam and Eve did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Self-emptying is what he modeled for us. The words of John Calvin, For even if the Word in His immeasurable essence united with the nature of man into one person, we do not imagine that He was confined there. God was not bound By human form. He chose it. Here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, He willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth and to hang on the cross, yet He continuously filled the world even as He had done from the beginning. 
So Christ, who is in heaven, has clothed himself in our flesh so that by stretching out his brotherly hand to us, he may raise us up to heaven with himself. That's Christmas. So amid the lights, the presence, the selfishness, the craziness, this is what we're celebrating. God stretching out his hand so that he might raise us up with him.